Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. It's Tuesday, December 12th. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation. Hawaii Talks it is day seven of the end of the year membership drive. This morning, we focus on a major flood control project that borders the Waikiki area, our economic engine, as well as surrounding communities. The Alawai Canal study is round two of a plan to protect neighborhoods and businesses in the area. We hear from the, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers about the need to reduce our flood risk. We rebroadcast an interview with local musician and international star Jake Shumabukuro, who shares the healing gift of music. And we also meet the first ever bodyboarding world champion. The Oahu native shares how he got the nickname, the Boogeyman. The two-mile-long Alawai Canal is key to the vitality of neighborhoods around Waikiki, which harbors our visitor industry and is tied to our economic health. That is why input into a project to minimize the flood risk is being encouraged. There are two meetings tonight and tomorrow to do just that. We talked to Eric Merriam, the project manager for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, this morning. The area covers 19 square miles of a watershed stretching from Makiki to Manoa to Palolo and services more than 40 public and private schools and colleges. The flood mitigation plan is a long-term project to be funded by the federal government. Here's Merriam. Well, we understand that there is considerable flood risk for the residents, visitors, and those that play within the Alawai watershed. This study is a follow-up to the original 2017 feasibility study that identified a solution or a plan that would reduce flood risk at the 1% flood event or the event with a 1% chance of occurring in any given year. During the more detailed engineering and design that followed that feasibility study, they determined that modifications would need to be made in order to have it function as intended at that 1% event. However, those changes were not justified. And so this study really represents an opportunity to take a step back and take a fresh look at the flood problem within the Alawai watershed, uh, utilizing new technical tools such as flood modeling to better understand the problem and identify a solution that really is optimal for the folks that work, live, and play within the Alawai watershed. The second round, you know, with all this new input was in part because the community got involved and you want to engage the neighborhoods around there and the businesses to weigh in on this new plan. Absolutely. Public input is critical to the planning process and identifying a solution um, that is viable for these communities. We have held 14 public meetings or public input sessions to date. At this point, we have released a draft report that has what we call a tentatively selected plan within it. And the next two days really represent an opportunity for the community to come out and voice you know, their support or concerns regarding the plan that we're proposing in the draft report. And so you know, the next two evenings are, are critical to our understanding of how the community feels about this project. And for our listeners, what changes uh, have been made to this plan? The initial feasibility study back in 2017 really focused on efforts to store water further up in the watershed. Whenever they were looking to make modifications to that plan, they really changed the approach from storing water further up to looking to manage risk down further in the watershed by implementing things like flood walls along the canal. Um, the plan that we are proposing in the draft report is kind of a mix of those two things. We have a very large detention basin at the Alawai Golf Course and then flood walls to help reduce risk along the canals and at strategic locations throughout the watershed. I think one of the big things that's worth noting here is that we have heard a lot of the input and feedback from the community 
and really made an effort to incorporate features into the plan that really reduce or mitigate those impacts to the community. Things like an elevated walkway along the, the canal flood wall so that the, the height of the wall, if you're standing right next to it, is only three feet. And so you can still um, enjoy views of the canal and the Diamond Head crater. Also things like incorporating canoe launch areas as well, as well as a, a lava rock or volcanic rock facade. So we really have tried to incorporate features um, to get at addressing some of the feedback that we have received in previous iterations of the study. You know, to be honest, I mean, just my, you know, cursory review, it does look like a much better project and maybe something that, you know, the community can get behind, you know, be, because initially those really high walls alarmed uh, a lot of the neighborhood. And, you know, there were some property owners that were fearful of their property getting condemned for this project. But it really is a lot more pleasing visually than the first go around. The team has been able to, again, take a step back and take a really hard look at ways that we can construct this project while having minimal impact to the community. So in addition to incorporating those features, we really identified novel and unique approaches to the engineering. So designing the wall so that it doesn't have to be set back as far from the canal. Also utilizing and identifying unique and novel approaches to construction so that the impacts to the community adjacent to the project would be minimized as well. Well, I think, you know, for the folks who do frequent that area, the activity on the canal with the canoe clubs practicing, it is a part of life down there. And so if you can enhance it, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think an important thing to remember here is that this is a very large project, but we're not designing and implementing this project for short-term benefits. Really, we're designing and implementing this project uh, for long-term benefits, right? We need to think about how flooding is going to impact future generations and how the communities can become resilient. And if we can find a solution that can be integrated into the area with minimal impacts, both to the visual resources as well as individuals' ability to utilize that resource, uh, then I think it's been success. That's what we have tried to do during this process. Okay, and then now what about the funding? Because in the first go around, I know there was a federal money that would have been available uh, very quickly for the mitigation. So what's the snapshot on the funding now? So this study is 100% federally funded, utilizing the same resources that the original construction was intended to use. After this study that is 100% federally funded, it will be up to Congress to both authorize and appropriate uh, funding for construction of this project. Uh, there are opportunities that the team is identifying and will be seeking to reduce the burden on the community and the, and the city and county. But again, the most important thing to do right now is to complete the feasibility study, identify that solution, and then work together to identify funding opportunities to, to get this project implemented. And what is the timetable? So the study is expected to be completed currently uh, in June of 2024, so about six months from now. Following the completion in June, uh, the Chief of Engineers will submit a report to Congress for Congress to act upon, again, to authorize and appropriate. At that point, it really is up to Congress in terms of the timing for providing funding for construction. But we know that additional design has to happen, and that additional design work can take up to two years, and the construction could take up to five years, uh, current estimates. And so, you know, implementation isn't immediate, but again, that's one reason we need to complete this study as soon as possible and identify that solution so that we can start down that path 
to ensure that the community is resilient moving forward. And then in the second go around, did we include, you know, updated information, let's say on climate change uh, and concerns, you know, about increased flooding? Yes. The Corps of Engineers has very specific uh, policy and guidance that mandates that we incorporate both climate change and sea level rise into the formulation of alternative plans. So one of the pieces of input that we commonly receive is that the, the mapping, the flood mapping that we produce does not look like the flooding that has been experienced in the past. And one big reason for that is we are in incorporating sea level rise and climate change into those maps. And so it is extremely important to realize that we are working to design a solution that will be resilient in the face of sea level rise and climate change. Uh, one thing that we do is that we, we look at how the project, uh, how risk changes to the project if we see uh, an increase in intensity of precipitation events, you know, if we see increases in sea level rise. And so we incorporate that information into the formulation and design of alternatives, um, but we also take it into consideration when we consider how risk is going to change for the community moving forward. And so how can the public learn more? Yeah, so in the very short term, uh, we have public meetings tonight, an in-person meeting, as well as tomorrow, a virtual meeting. But we have a study, a very robust study website, honolulu.gov slash that has all sorts of information, um, recordings and information from all the 14 previous public engagements. And so I, I encourage folks to attend the two meetings in the next two days and then also go to the website to, to learn more. Folks can also provide comments via a comment form on the website or submit a comment directly um, to an email that is listed on the website as well. So there are lots of ways uh, to get informed and to be engaged, especially in the short term. All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate uh, all the effort that's going into this because it'll ultimately, you know, help that uh, community uh, stay safe in the face of uh, all the changes. But thanks again. I appreciate the time today. That was Eric Merriam, project manager for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, talking to us earlier this morning about take two on a proposed flood control project for the Alawai Canal. There is an in-person public meeting tonight at the city's uh, Mission Auditorium to get input. There will also be an online event tomorrow for the community to weigh in on the proposed changes. And we'll have links to both posted on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii State Health Insurance Assistance Program, SHIP, Volunteers Helping Communities Understand Medicare. More about volunteering at 808-586-7299 or at hawaiiship.org. A high-profile corruption case involving former city prosecutor Keith Kaneshiro is making its way to the starting line. Today, our reality check looks at the latest court wrangling as we get closer to the trial date. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Yes. And, you know, we haven't heard a whole lot about this Kaneshiro case. So what's the latest? Mm -hmm. It's been working its way through the courts, just kind of attorneys uh, fighting over legal issues. The latest update is that the defense attorneys had tried with all their might to get the case dismissed. They even made claims of prosecutorial misconduct to justify throwing the case out. But ultimately, that was unsuccessful, according to a ruling that came out on Friday. And this is uh, involving the special prosecutor, right, Michael Weed? 
Right, exactly. So just to recap folks who don't remember the case, so former Honolulu prosecutor Keith Kaneshiro is accused by the special prosecutor of essentially pursuing a criminal case in exchange for campaign money. And that money allegedly came from members of the engineering firm Mitsunaga and Associates, including its CEO, Dennis Mitsunaga. And so that trial is scheduled for February now. The case will be proceeding. And the charges that he had a case that really didn't hold water against a former employee of Mitsunaga and Associates. That is the allegation that Mitsunaga essentially had a vendetta against this ex-employee and they had tried to duke it out in court by themselves, but thought it might be useful to use the prosecutor to go after her with the force of the legal system. And it, the case did proceed for a while, except eventually it was thrown out by a state court judge who just said there's nothing to this. Um, so that is, you know, the, the essence of the indictment, you know, innocent until proven guilty. We'll see whether that bears out in court. And Mitsunaga has been known as a generous donor to members of the Democratic Party, including Keith's campaign. Oh, yeah. Mr. Mitsunaga is a pretty prolific campaign donor that political reporters have been aware of for many years, uh, giving to political candidates. There's no indication that we're aware of that this kind of thing was going on with those donations. But between him and his associates and even his attorney, they gave tens of thousands of dollars to Kaneshiro's campaign around the time that they were allegedly trying to buy this prosecution. So while Kaneshiro's attorneys are, are then saying this is bogus and the prosecutor, you know, doesn't have his ducks in a row, the judge basically said, no, not so. Right. The judge said their arguments were overblown. They made several arguments, one saying that the government charging uh, Mitsunaga's attorney, Sherry Tanaka, interfered with the attorney-client relationship because she was in a disadvantaged position while representing him unknowingly that she was a target of the investigation. They also took issue with how the grand jury was conducted. Mitsunaga's attorney said that several witnesses were asked misleading questions about why did you all give money to Kaneshiro's campaign on the same day? In fact, it wasn't the same day. The checks were deposited on the same day, but were not written to the campaign on the same day. And Mitsunaga's attorney said that you know, confused the grand jurors. Judge Seabright ultimately disagreed with that and said, you know, I think the distinction was clear and there was no evidence the grand jurors were confused. So the case can proceed. Interesting. So yeah, was it a reach or not? But yeah, so I guess we'll see how this plays out. And of course, there's still the other public corruption cases involving uh, the former top city lawyer, uh, the managing director, and a uh, Caldwell loyalist. Yes. So, well, yeah, all very interesting to see how this is all going to play out in 2024. Yes, some very consequential cases in, uh, in local corruption investigations. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedra, who has been tracking these many public corruption cases. You can read this latest story at civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Days after the devastation of the Maui wildfires this past August, ukulele master Jake Shimabukuro performed on the Valley Isle for a grieving audience. A day later, with a heavy heart, he sat down with the conversation's Russell Subiono in our Atherton Performing Arts Studio to talk about music and healing. I think music, you know, the arts, it nourishes our, our soul and it does support in ways that some of those tangible things just can't provide so I can't I don't know how to explain it you know Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we've all had moments where where music and the arts have touched us in a very profound way I mean even on stage last night I mean it was hard to to hold back tears you know but there's just so many so many people that are just want to do so much and are doing so much and that's all I think that's that's what, what we got to do is just come together as a community and support each other in the best way that we can. Yeah, and I think I really believe, you know, music music helps. I mean, yeah, there's a, yeah, music. Music is a, it's a wonderful thing. I sometimes wonder about the way music helps us or touches us inwardly. I, I imagine that, that people sometimes when they sing or, or if they want to sing, I feel like that's that's them reaching for that healing in some cases. I think we see a lot of that like in church. You know, when, when people are singing in church, there's there's an inward effect that happens on them. When you think about the people that have gone through this experience on Maui, how would you encourage them to to use their voice or, or use the music that they feel inside of them to process the the experience that they've gone through i mean everyone's different you know but i i just i just hope that i mean like last night you know in the beginning of the i don't want to say concert but in the beginning of the gathering you know Mm -hmm. the community i think you know before i i played the first song i mean i i just said that i i hope whatever happens tonight serves each each person there and becomes what they need at this moment, you know, in time. I mean, that's all you can hope for, right? And, uh, and you know, and, and hopefully everyone walked away feeling just a little bit lifted or just have a little bit of that release, you know, that's so important. Someone told me, today at the airport that you know this is going to be a marathon you know for recovery mm-hmm. and all i know is that it's just you know we just i think for all of us you know, that we all have friends and family mm-hmm. there and we're all affected by it and i think that uh we all just want to do something we all just want to do whatever we can right so yeah and i feel like all of us have even if we're we're not on maui and we can't help you know, on the ground, we all have time, talent, and treasure that we can contribute to the process, right? And I feel like musicians, a lot of the time, are the leaders when it comes to using your talent to to be able to benefit people or, or you know, advance the the healing process of of tragedies like this. Yeah, the I think as musicians, you know, that's that's one of the things we 
we love to do is you know we want to we just want to bring people together mm-hmm. through music and you know help to spread you know some some support and joy and some love you know we're just all trying to do whatever whatever we can and you know it's 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 just getting the word out you know yeah. of how people can can support and like i said you know the the more people that can help to spread the word of what the hawaii community foundation yeah. is doing that's all we're trying to do you know is get the word out and i think collectively you know that's what a lot of artists are doing if you see those those qr codes mm-hmm. you know with the maui strong fund you know that's that's the organization would you be willing to play something that maybe is an expression of how you feel for the people on Maui? Oh yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, it's much easier for me to communicate, you know, my thoughts and things, you know, through through the ukulele. Yeah, I just, I just feel like whenever I talk, I, I'm just rambling. <laughs> you know, I just uh, you're just <laughs> yeah. trying to find the the words, and you know, and, yeah. and sometimes you know, I mean, there really are no words, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I would love to play something. Yeah, but this is um, Ichigo Ichi. It really, okay. um, I don't know, for me, it really, uh, especially like during the pandemic and stuff like that, that, I mean, it's really a, like, a, like a way of life, you know, philosophy, yeah. so. Thank you. 
was ukulele virtuoso Jake Shimabukuro, who talked with HBR's Russell Subiano back in August. Shimabukuro is currently on tour with a show tonight in St. Louis and tomorrow in Louisville, Kentucky. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Kauai's Tanner McDaniel was recently named the 2023 World Bodyboarding Champion. He is the fourth bodyboarder from Hawaii to claim the crown, a list that includes the very first world champion in. 1982, Daniel Kaimi. Kaimi grew up in Kaneohe and spent years charging big waves around Oahu. In those days, the bodyboard was known as the Boogie Board, which explains Kaimi's nickname, the Boogeyman. Over 40 years later, he's still paddling out to the lineup. The Conversations Bus Subiono caught up with Kaimi in her studio yesterday. What are your memories of being named the first ever bodyboarding world champion in 1982? Yeah, it was a goal of mine to, to get to be the best and so I just went for it and just yeah. dedicated my life to trying to ride waves. How old are you when, when that happened? 20 years old. 20? Yeah. Okay. And how long had you been bodyboarding? I guess we called it boogie boarding in that day, right? Yeah, boogie boarding. Yeah. yeah. So actually, I started late according to the typical standards. Yeah. So I think it was like sorry, when I was about 15 or something. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So up until that point, you'd been bodyboarding for about five years? Right. Yeah. How did you discover the bodyboard or the or the sport? Were you a surfer first and kind of switched over to the bodyboard? Pipeboarding. boarding. Oh, pipe. Okay. Yeah, I was doing pipe. Yeah. And then I heard about the boogie boards and I saw the people riding it. And then I remember, you know, I'm young, so eleven. We didn't have any money, uh-huh. so I had a wetsuit, and a, a neighbor of mine wanted a, a diving wetsuit, and I wasn't a diver, so I said, "Oh, I'll, you know, I sold him the wetsuit for the mm-hmm. price of a." A boogie board, and that's how I started. Oh, so that was your first boogie board? First boogie board, wow. yeah. I, fought, I bought it from the McCulley Bicycle Shop in Waipau. Yeah. That was the cheapest place to get it. Wow. Yeah. And that place is still around, right? Yeah. 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 And I imagine you didn't miss out on getting hit with the pipe board every yes. time you wiped out, right? <laughs> right. Or getting stuck in your in your gut when you hit the sand. Yeah. You know that hurt. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how, how long do you think it took you to kind of master the board? Did it take you a few months, a years? That's a good question. I guess I was always trying to push the limits. Yeah. So just always trying to think of what could I do better? What could I do better? Yeah. And just kept on going. Where did you used to surf a lot? Where were some of your favorite breaks? My first remembrance of just even riding a wave was at Kahana Bay. Okay. Yeah, I used to go down there for picnics and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I just loved it. That was my first memory. And so when you when you got the bodyboard, was it a thing where you just started getting into bigger and bigger waves as, as time went on? How did you go from, like, Sandy's to Pipeline? So I was living in Kanye. I grew up in Kanye, Kalu, as you know, and, and I was going to Makapu and Sandy's a lot. Yeah. And Sandy's was a different wave back then. It was a heavy wave. It was oh. a sand. We had more sand, and the shore break could handle, like, Eight feet, mm-hmm. no problem. It didn't close out until ten feet. And wow. That's huge for a short break. Yeah, you know, especially on the south shore. So after riding that, and I, 
you know, when I heard about pipeline and things, and wintertime, of course, Sandy's don't have much waves. Mm-hmm. So I started going out to actually hitchhike and didn't have no car, I didn't have no money or nothing. <laughs> and just, uh, yeah, hitchhike off to uh, North Shore and started going to pipeline. But actually, what was amazing that even though my friend first took me out there, he said, wow, the waves are so steep, isn't it? And I told him, no, it's not. And he's like, huh? Sandy's is way steeper. I mean, he goes, really? He goes, yes, it's, it's a lot heavier wave. I mean, obviously, pipeline is bigger, yeah. but Sandy's was steeper. So actually, the transition wasn't that hard. You know, then you're just learning how to ride bigger waves, of course. Yeah. I guess learning to ride bigger waves comes with just experience, right? The more you paddle out into bigger waves, the more you acquire the skill to be able to maneuver on them, right? And so mm-hmm. over those five years, did you experiment on a lot of different breaks? I read that the first championship was held at Pipeline. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you must have done, you know, Waimea or Sunset or there must have been some other breaks too, right, that you got better at before you got to Pipeline. No, I went from, nope. okay. from Sandy Beach straight to Pipe. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sandy's to Pipe. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then I started adventuring other places. Yeah. yeah. But it was pretty much, you just ran the right pipe. It was, it was hollow. Yeah. Right? You know, it was barrels. So yeah, that was the place to be. For me to think of somebody surfing pipe is, is like, they just have this huge skill set that I, I can't even comprehend. But, I mean, that's that's crazy. Straight from Sandy's to Pipe. Wow. Actually, it's more of a desire, I guess. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. But so you, you have to yeah. have the desire to ride waves yeah. of that size or yeah, that heavy waves. It's nothing to do, yeah. But some people may have the skill, but if you don't have the desire, yeah. it doesn't end well. You know, obviously today, bodyboarding is such a big industry. From what I understand, the bodyboarders go on tour, they, they enter contests, they accumulate points, and, and whoever has the most points at the end of the season is the world bodyboarding champion right was was that the same process back in 1982 in your day was that how it how it worked as well no but it, it just started yeah so that was the first international way they brought people from all over the world to compete to become a world champion yeah. so that was completely different yeah what are your memories of of that day of the uh, actual contest always was good yeah yeah it was really good do you feel like you were the guy in the lineup that had the most experience or the most hunger? Was there a point where you kind of knew that you were going to win this contest? I was just out there to have fun. Yeah. You know, just try to get the biggest and deepest barrels you can and, yeah. and do the most wild things that come to your mind in a wave. You go, what can I do to win this thing? Do you have a favorite break? Yeah. So, well, it depends on the, the parts, different parts of the island. Yeah. So, so Pipe was my favorite break on an North Shore. Sandy's is favorite break yeah. in the South Shore. For the summertime, Yokohama is my favorite break for years. In fact, my wife and I got married in Yokohama on a bodyboard. So we did a ceremony on the beach and went out and did it yeah. in the water. And people say, how do you do the rings? I said, well, we put a dental floss around our neck, mm-hmm. a really long one around the ring, and then we put the ring on and the pastor cut it. And I put it on my back, caught a wave in, went out for breakfast, and that was it. I remember telling my teachers that that's how I was going to get married. And yeah. he said, you're not going to get married then. No <laughs> girl's going to put up with that. There's no way. So, yeah. did, it, did it take a lot to convince her? No. She didn't, she didn't know how to swim, and she never saw a wave in her life. Uh-huh. And so I guess she said she just was in la-la land, so she wasn't scared. <laughs> I've also had the opportunity to interview eight-time bodyboarding champion Mike Stewart. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Mike Stewart is revered in bodyboarding circles, but you, 
you're the OG. You are the original champion. Today's generations or later generations, do they know who you are? Uh, I guess so. I don't really think about it much. I don't have any social media or anything. Yeah. But I have people that would you know, come up to me and, and tell me, yeah. But you kind of think, like, why? So long time ago, you know? But they still remember. I said, oh, okay. That's okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're still bodyboarding today? Is that yeah. You still paddle out today? Yeah. I got into um, body foiling, though. You heard of that, yeah? Well, actually, I haven't, but I imagine that it's just like the, the foil surfing, right? Right. You got, the, you got the hydrofoil underneath the board? Correct. How is that? That's amazing. And it's actually the guy, his name is Sam Pye, that taught me mm-hmm. about how to call it boogie foiling. And I tell you what, you take everything you know about boogie boarding and throw it out the window. Wow. It was this completely different animal. Really? And you take beatings at the beginning. Uh-huh. Takes beatings. Yeah, it's really yeah. difficult. And then once you get to learn, they call it flying, then it's amazing because you're wow. going so fast and such, even though just a bump and you're just flying. I imagine so you can go fun. for longer distances too, Oh, yeah, right? by far. Yeah. yeah. My f- farthest one was about 2,000 foot, 2,100 foot ride. Your nickname is the Boogeyman. Obviously a brilliant and appropriate nickname. How did you get it? <laughs> they came up with it, not me. <laughs> Somebody just started calling you yeah. the Boogeyman? Yeah. yeah. I guess because a lot of time was the only one in a lineup, so I just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. The Boogeyman, yeah. Well, Daniel Kaimi, the very first world bodyboarding champion, Man, thanks so much for coming into the station. You're welcome. I was so stoked to talk to you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, that was the very first world bodyboarding champion, Daniel Kaimi, talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. Today, Kaimi owns a couple of successful businesses and splits his time between boogie foiling at his favorite spots and snowboarding on the continent.